captain's logs. Han Solo. I'm Captain of the Millennium Falcon. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Federation Starship Enterprise. Listening to Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, part of the Geek News Now podcast network. Welcome to episode seven of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers podcast. My name is Jonathan, and if you've been listening to the show for a while, you already know that this is the podcast that covers both Star Trek and Star Wars in the same show. If you're new to the show, welcome. We're happy you decided to join us. The format of our show is pretty simple. My co-host and I curate and discuss several of the major news stories that have come out of both franchises. Then we dive into our feature topic for the episode, which is almost always a comparison and contrast of a show, movie, or topic from both Star Trek and Star Wars. We look for the similarities, the differences, and try to show you that really they're not so different after all. Episode 7 is going to be the conclusion of our little mini-series about the early influences of Star Wars on Star Trek in the 1970s. The previous discussions that we had on this topic can be found in Episodes 4 and 6, if you want to go back and listen to those, if you haven't already. But, before we get into that discussion, I want you to welcome my co-host, Chris. What's new with you since we last recorded a few weeks ago? Hey, Jonathan. It's uh, good to be back with you. A few little odds and ends have happened in kind of like the Star Trek world. I was at a casino not too long ago and won some money. I won a total of 18 bucks. And so I managed to turn my first winnings into a Star Trek loot. I got the uh, complete series, the animated series of the original Star Trek. So that was kind of fun. And it was, I won the $50 free gameplay. So I ended up getting 18 bucks from it. So turning it into something nerdy for Star Trek was wonderful. You know, that's the big thing. (laughs) Yeah. All I've been up to. (laughs) All right. All right. A little inside baseball for our listeners. The casino that Chris went to is the one that I happen to work at. So Mm -hmm. uh, we we briefly got to say hi while I was busy in one of my games. But I'm happy to hear that, you know, you were able to take advantage of that new member promotion, win a little bit of money and and, uh, add to your nerd collection. I love it. Yes, absolutely. Loved it. All right. So, yeah, without uh, further delay, we have a good bit of news to discuss this week because both Star Trek and Star Wars decided they were going to bless us with a major influx of content over the past three weeks. Move the ship out of the asteroid field so that we can send a clear transmission. Captain, incoming message. Contessa, I have good news. In a move that seemed to fuel the fires of comparison between the two franchises, much like our show does, yeah, Star Trek decided to go all in on news announcements on April 5th, which, uh, as any fan of the franchise will know, it's First Contact Day. When Once I saw all of these announce- announcements, I was immediately reminded of how Lucasfilm and, and Star Wars merchandisers, uh, you know, what they do every year when it comes to the unofficial Star Wars holiday of May the 4th. You know, this ten- this holiday... Uh, created by the fans, tends to all, you know feature announcements of not only merchandise, but also on-screen contact. And, and First Contact Day 2021 was really no different. On the merchandising and collectibles front, we did get some announcements of a few new high-detail models, like the Phoenix, which is the, uh, the ship that Zephram Cochran built in Star Trek and was responsible for making First Contact with the Vulcans. 
Uh, and then they also are releasing a, uh, a a highly detailed model of the Vulcan surveyor ship, which is the one that made contact with the Phoenix. We also got an announcement of two pocket-sized multi-tools that combine things like screwdrivers, bottle openers, hex wrenches, and other little handy tools. Uh, this year for Star Trek First Contact Day, there were three uh, that are going to be released that are Star Trek themed. Um, two of them are going to be in the shapes of the Enterprise. We're going to get one from the original Enterprise 1701, and then we're going to get another one that's in the shape of the 1701D from the Next Generation. Uh, and we're also going to get a third one that's in the shape of a Klingon Batleth. Uh, do you think you'll be picking up any of this merchandise, Chris? Let's see. The pocket-sized multi-tools might actually be of interest to me. Something in my pocket that it'll get me more motivated to use my tools and stuff. Anything that I can use that's geeked out will definitely draw me to it a lot more. So I'm definitely looking into that one. And if there's uh, the Enterprise D is my first love of all the Enterprises, so definitely I'll grab that. Um, Klingon Batleth would be interesting, too, to have something like that. You know, what about you? Are you planning on getting any of these things? Uh, you know, I, I, I very well might have to pick up one or two of those multi-tools. Probably the Enterprise D and then the, the Batleth if I do get mm -hmm. both. So, mm -hmm. That's just pretty cool. <laughs> right. Yeah, it is pretty, it's pretty, it's awesome the way they come up with these little odds and ends that people wouldn't even think about and trekking them out. So it'll be interesting to see what they're like. Was there anything else that came out or was announced around First Contact Day? Yeah, around that time, um, I noticed that Star Trek Discovery is being turned into a pizza cutter, um, which would be very interesting to get. I think they might have had one of the original Enterprise in the past, but so many of Discovery's fans have noted that the ship looks like one giant pizza cutter, you know, so I think it'd be fun just to get it, just to say I have it. You know, with my keto diet, I can't eat pizza, but just to have it in my kitchen would be great. You know, <laughs> exactly. And then... Right. There were two other things that I noticed, even though they weren't like part of First Contact Day, but apparently there's some Star Trek The Next Generation rubber duckies being released. I did see those, yeah. Yeah, so that would be, I wouldn't mind getting those. And, you know, I'm not big on rubber ducks, but just the fact that they'd be Star Trek ones, I think I, I'd put them in my bathroom, absolutely. Absolutely. You know? You know, and then um, I think with the, with the, there was a Mego figure that was announced. I think it's the Salt Vampire from the original series. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you know, any fans of the Mego action figures out there, definitely keep an eye out for that one because that looks it looks pretty cool. The only thing I noticed different about it is is it it looked like it had like a white sweater or white white something on underneath. Um, didn't look like it was its own fur. So I don't know. We'll see, but I mean, it looks cool. Yeah, so the Salt Vampire episode, I know that uh, when we interviewed Landry Walker, he was saying that anytime he turned on the original series, it would always be that episode that aired. Uh, mm -hmm. That's the one where the miners were having trouble, right? Uh, no, uh, oh. the, man, the Man Trap was actually the very first episode that was released. Um, and it involved this uh, the, the crew members being killed unexpectedly, and they had these little circles like suction cups on their faces. That's it, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so do you want to cover our next news item there, Chris? So we got some big convention news during the first contact day that is really going to shake up um, how Star Trek fans plan their yearly outings. Paramount's contract with Creation Entertainment, um, the organizer behind the Star Trek Las Vegas convention for the past two decades, has ended, surprisingly. Uh, Paramount is now contracted Reed Pop Entertainment. Uh, they're the convention juggernaut behind Star Wars Celebration, C2E2, and New York Comic Con, among many others worldwide. 
to be in charge of future Star Trek conventions. The first of these, Star Trek Mission Chicago, will take place at McCormick Place in Chicago, April's 8th through the 10th. So this really surprised me. When I found out earlier in the last month or so that Creation Entertainment was no longer networked with CBS to do the official Star Trek convention anymore, to be honest with you, I was stunned. Especially, I've been to three Star Trek Las Vegas conventions, and they put on an amazing show. It's, it was just very odd to me to hear that they were pulling out of such a great place uh, that they that they were doing. I don't know if there was some sort of contract issue or renegotiation or what, but they put on a great show. Now, Creation Entertainment is still planning on putting on Las Vegas shows for Star Trek conventions. However, they're not going to be networked with CBS now, so... It'll be interesting to see what it's like in over in Chicago because it doesn't seem like it would be like the best tourist place to go. Like you go to Vegas for that five day convention, and then you not only can you do the convention, but you can go out into Las Vegas, and there are so many different things for people to do. And a lot of times, the fans would meet up in different places besides the Rio and and do other little side things. I'm sure you could do that in Chicago, but I don't know if it's going to be more limited. So I'm not sure how that's going to go. Jonathan, what are your thoughts? Look, man, I will break my diet for a deep dish pizza. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't blame you. (laughs) Uh, But 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 in all seriousness, uh, you know, I I find the dates that they're having uh, Star Trek Mission Chicago to be interesting because that's around the same dates that they had the last Star Wars celebration in Chicago. Really? uh, Yeah. And that was uh, the last Star Wars celebration was 2019 in Chicago. Uh, at the very same venue, the McCormick Place. And the weather was, I mean, it was Chicago in early April. It was cold. It mm-hmm. was, it, and it snowed uh, on, it snowed on the last day of Star Wars Celebration on that Monday. Wow. Um, I know a lot of people had gotten stuck uh, in Chicago, you know, because their flights got delayed. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I find it interesting that they chose those dates, but, you know. Hey, why not? Uh, but uh, you know, as far as you know, as far as Repop is concerned, they put on a hell of a show too. Um, Good. They are the mm-hmm. premier name when it comes to these conventions. You know, mm-hmm. they've been doing Star Wars Celebration for years. They've you know they've been doing New York Comic Con. You know, and I I do like the fact that we're going to get a traveling convention with star trek so uh, you know it'll be nice that you know one year you know it'll be in chicago another year it could be in california it could be mm-hmm. in uh orlando i mean there's all kinds of big convention centers that could you know house you know a, a star trek convention i don't know if you are familiar with how popular star wars celebration is and especially how you know popular it's gotten over the last several iterations of star wars celebration but how how does uh how does Star Trek Las Vegas compare as far as the amount of fans that are in, in attendance? Oh, it's, I would say it's pretty much the same as you would probably see it at Star Wars Celebration. It's, it's jammed full. Even, and, and you would think even with it being spread out over five days, you would think people might get tired of it, not want to stay the whole time. And, and yeah, you have your general people that kind of come and go, but 
it's jam packed there all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's loaded with different types of panels. They have two different rooms at the Rio. There's the main theater where they do most of the panels. And then a lot of the celebrities, the main celebrities come out, but then you have this, a secondary theater where they would have kind of like more like the guest stars who had been on and, mm -hmm. and other little smaller uh, discussions and panels. They would even have the uh, blooper reel in there, I believe, what they, they did. Uh, so, yes, I mean, they make use of every area that they possibly could. When I went to Las Vegas in 2019, they even had the Star Trek Picard, the Captain Picard Museum part of it there, uh, which was really cool. They had a whole big section for that. And then they had some sort of like virtual reality room that you could go into, put the goggles on and play the game. I was actually waiting in line for that, but the actor who played Nog, Aaron Eisenberg was actually using it, and I didn't get my chance because he was using it, which was fine, you know. But uh, yeah, I, I really would have loved to have seen that. So I'm sure that they do the same thing at Star Wars Celebration. They probably have all these different types of panels and costume contests and dealers' rooms. You know, it's, it's just amazing. So, and I know you've been to at least one Star Wars Celebration. So, what was it like for you? Yeah, so I was at Star Wars Celebration Orlando, and, you know, I didn't get a chance to go to Star Wars Celebration Chicago in 2019, but I, I do know a lot of people that went. The sky's going to be the limit, with, especially with uh, the first one being at McCormick Place, because the for the main stage, they have an entire arena where they can seat people that's attached to the McCormick place by a sky wow. bridge. So, I mean, this is like a, you know, like a multi-purpose uh, arena venue for sporting events, for concerts, for, uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. So, I mean, the fact that that could be their main stage, mm -hmm. plus they have several large, uh, you know, rooms that they can use inside the proper, you know, the convention center proper, uh, you know, they have, I know Star Wars Celebration typically has three stages where they have content and panels. Uh, plus, they have multiple overflow rooms for people that don't get into the main panels. They can still see the the, the panel live streamed in a separate conference room. Um, okay. So the 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 amount of people that can be packed into these panels. Yeah, you might not get in the main room, but uh, you know you you might get an opportunity to at least see the live stream uh, while sitting in a chair and, and kind of enjoying the content. Uh, sure. I know, you know, whenever I went to Star Wars Celebration in Orlando uh, in 2017, uh, they had, it was the 40th anniversary of A New Hope, of course. Uh, sure. So they had a huge opening day panel for that. And I got in one of the overflow rooms. Unfortunately, I didn't get in the main room, but you know, they had, uh, they had brought out, George Lucas was there. Harrison Ford was there. Uh, <laughs> Billy D. Williams. Like they, they basically had everybody from a new hope that was able, you know, of course, Carrie Fisher had passed, uh, yeah. you, know, you know, prior to that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but you know, of course they had a, a very nice tribute to her. Um, they had started, you know, they had started to show a clip reel of Carrie and Princess Leia clips and such. And then you just start to hear uh, some music being played, right? Mm -hmm. And it, all of a sudden in the main room, a curtain drops and there is John Williams with the Orlando Philharmonic Orchestra playing this music live. Wow. And and at, at one point in the um, the clip reel, they had started to play Princess Leia's theme, and uh, I'm not gonna lie, I you know 
I started weeping like a child mm-hmm. just because it was so powerful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and I, I wish I just kind of wish I would have been in the main room with that mm-hmm. happening. But just still to get to experience it, even live stream was was incredible. So right. well, that's uh, amazing. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fantastic uh, opportunity for Paramount and and Repop mm-hmm. to to really take Star Trek conventions to the next level. So I'm excited. Oh yeah, I, absolutely. I think any there's. Never any downside to having extra conventions, definitely. <laughs> and, you know, I know you and I talked about it online before we did this, and uh, we talked about how it would be nice if the convention came back to Pittsburgh. But I remember, I remember being a kid, and there would be at least one convention a year. And of course, they were a lot different. They would just be the weekend, and you'd have one actor for the whole weekend. You know, but they were they were tons of fun, and I just think it'd be great for them to come back down here again you know we have the big uh david l Lawrence convention center mm-hmm. we had wizard wizard world comic-con come you know so that would be great but you never know i mean maybe the interest in this city is not as big as in other areas yeah know? who knows and it, it's yeah. you know it, it, it's also about finding enough hotels you know for people to stay that are close enough to yeah uh the convention center i mean exactly. downtown pittsburgh has a lot of hotels and Mm-hmm. There's a good many that are close to the convention center, but will it be mm-hmm. able to handle that many Star Trek fans? It's hard to say. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess we'll find out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want to talk about some Star Trek trailers? So first contact day also saw the release of both a trailer for season four of Star Trek Discovery and a teaser for season two of Star Trek Picard. The trailer for Discovery contained a lot of footage from the upcoming season, including portraying the crew of the ship dressed in new uniforms uh, that seemed very reminiscent of the classic uniforms featured in previous Star Trek series, you know, with the red, the yellow, the blue, dominating the majority of the uniforms, instead of just accenting the more basic navy blue that we saw in the previous ones. So, Jonathan, what did you think about the uniforms we got from the trailer? And what other observations did you make while watching the Discovery trailer? We got those classic uniforms a little bit with the Enterprise crew in Season 2 um, mm-hmm. of, of Star Trek Discovery when they were still in the, uh, the, the, you know, the 22nd century. I just, I, I guess I kind of find it interesting that they're going back to that uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, you know, in, in Season 4 just because they are so far into the future that, uh, you know, it's... Um, I don't know. I, I I don't know if it just meant to feel more Trek or make people feel m- more nostalgic, if that's why they're doing it or, or what's mm-hmm. going on. I'm also really excited to see what kind of uh, trouble the you know the crew gets into this season. I just want to see how the the bridge crew responds to you know what they encounter because there are just so many badass women on that ship on that bridge, especially. I want to see what they can do. Uh, I want to see how much further they take the storyline with uh, with Stamets, and and I want to see what Tilly can do. You know, I'm just mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just really really excited. What about yeah, you? I think I think it, yeah, it looks like it's going to be interesting. Um, I like the new uniforms. I think a lot of pe- too many people complained, I guess, about the gray ones at the end of season three that they decided to just revamp them again. Um, they kind of look to me a little. They kind of remind me of the uh, uniforms from Star Trek two through six, just the, just kind of certain ways that they're designed. Somebody else online compared the two, so I, I just it's just a, a wild thought that I had that they seem similar. 
Um, let me think here. So I guess there's some sort of gravitational anomaly that's going to be the threat in season four. So we'll see. I mean, each season's had its own little unique kind of villainy going on. So it'll be interesting to see what they do with this gravimetric whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, but what really got me more excited about First Contact Day was not so much Discovery's trailer, but the season two teaser for Picard. That really got me going. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, if you look in all the different things that they had, just the, the Stargazer model, the uh, painting from the Enterprise D that Picard had in the, on the Enterprise in, in The Next Generation, somebody even said they thought they saw scorch marks on the right-hand side of it, which would make sense because of the Enterprise's destruction in Generations. So that's very possible. Mm-hmm. But also the biggest part was the the reveal that Q was going to be coming back for season two. That is going to be really fascinating. And the fact that he said at the end, the trial never ended. Obviously, that's a callback to what he told Picard in the, the finale, all good things. Mm-hmm. So now what are we going to get with Q? So because, I mean, every time Q had anything to do with the trial, he just seemed to be more and more evil or sinister than in some of the other episodes that that he had been in so is he going to come back is he going to have some sort of big test for picard again is he going to i don't know punish him for something i mean the sky's the limit what they could come up with oh yeah and then you know and you and i talked about this too how are they going to explain the age right right yeah because i mean obviously you know uh patrick stewart is a fair bit older than john delancey but You know, John Delancey is starting to show his age as well. I, I wonder sure. if, yeah. you know, perhaps, you know, he is going to appear the way, you know, you know, he's going to, obviously he's going to appear as himself, uh, you know, aged uh, you know, to what he is now. But how is he going to explain why he looks the way he does? Because the Q are omnipotent there. They uh-huh. take, you know, he took human form so that Picard could relate to him a little bit more uh, uh-huh. rather than appearing in his true form. But I, I have a feeling he's just going to be some sort of line. Like, you know, he's uh, appearing older so that Jean-Luc doesn't feel, uh, you know, like he is too old himself. Exactly. Exactly. My guess is they're going to do that de-aging like they did for Brent Spiner for Data. I mean, that's more, that's the kind of route I'm thinking, or like, you know, it could be like, just they get put a throwaway line in, like you're saying, you know, it's, it, it's very possible. It, it'll just be very, very interesting. And what I'm really looking forward to is seeing how Q interacts with the crew of the Lost Arena. I think that one's going to be really interesting. Can you imagine him going, a Q going toe to toe with uh, Raffi or <laughs> uh, with uh, Captain Rios? Right. I don't know. I just I get I, I can just see some really good comedic moments coming from that, you know. So hopefully, you know, it's going to be really exciting. Just wish that I knew when Picard was coming out. I heard it; it might actually be delayed again, which I guess would make sense. I'm surprised. I mean, to be honest with you, I'm surprised season four of Discovery's coming out so fast. Right, right, yeah. That they were able to get all of that film so much uh, with all yes. the COVID protocols in place. I mean, that's fantastic. I'm happy. Uh, sure. You know, because, uh, you know, we, we need some more Star Trek in our lives to, to balance mm-hmm. out all of the Star Wars that we're getting this year. So <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and then they also showed a, a real quick teaser for season two of Star Trek Lower Decks. 
Right. You know, there right. wasn't a whole, whole lot there, but it looks like Jonathan Frakes is coming back. on. So we'll have Captain Riker again on the Titan, which I'm sure we'll have Counselor Troy on there as well. So that'll be exciting to see what's mm-hmm. going on. And plus the way that they tied Lower Decks in so much continuity-wise into the other series, I think is why fans enjoy it as much as they do. Some of the humor is a little over the top for me. It makes me, is a little cringy for me. But I, overall, I think it's a pretty solid show. So it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. And I believe August 12th is the second season premiere date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think I need to finish season one first before I start season two. Oh, yeah. it's, it's on the list, but I just haven't gotten around to you to it yet. I feel like such a bad sure. fan, but Look, man, hey, it's, don't it's, feel bad. It's so yeah. hard. I, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't feel bad. I've I've only gotten through halfway of Discovery season two and three episodes of Discovery season three. Oh wow! So, okay, and I'm and I'm this hardcore Trekkie, so don't feel bad. <laughs> it's, 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 All right, well, it's, thanks. It's, it's, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for putting me at ease. Yes. <laughs> All right. So where are we off to next? I think we should talk about a little bit of Star Wars information and news that came out, don't you? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to this one. All right. So we're going to move on to the Star Wars news, like we just said, from the past few weeks. Uh, we, we've gotten some news regarding Star Wars Obi-Wan Kenobi, which is the series coming to Disney Plus sometime this year. Or, sorry, sometime next year. Uh, Lucasfilm has released an official cast announcement photo, which highlights a, a very multicultural cast of actors and actresses. Uh, you know, of course, you know, in addition to Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen, who were announced previously... Uh, we're getting Joel Edgerton and Bonnie Peace, who in the prequels were Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru, and they're going uh-huh. to reprise their roles. I'm so excited about that. Uh, yes. I, you know, and, and with uh, with everything that Bonnie Peace has been through, uh, I don't know how much, you know, real Hollywood stuff you keep up with, but she was deep into that Nexium cult, uh, the Nexium uh, cult that was part multi-level marketing scam, part sex cult. Um, she was wrapped up in that. She, she realized what was going on and got herself out in 2017, but it took a lot longer for her husband who she met because of this, uh, this Nexium cult. Uh, it took a lot longer for her to convince him to get out. And it'll be interesting to see her acting again, just because I don't think she's been in much of anything uh you know since since she escaped i know she did a couple documentaries uh about uh her time in the nexium cult but i don't think she's mm-hmm. actually acted in any um uh you know any in any fictional role so i'm excited to see her coming back um, oh, absolutely. you know we've got o'shea jackson jr who uh you might know by you might not know him by his his name uh but he's the son of ice cube Oh, really? Yeah, okay. yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then we're getting uh, Kumail Nanjiani, who I uh, absolutely adore. Uh, he's he's a stand-up comedian, an actor. Uh, he's in, He was in HBO's Silicon Valley. Uh, he was in a movie with his wife called The Lovebirds. Um, I just want him to, to be the voice of a droid. That's, that's all I ask. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you think about... What uh, the cast announcement that we got for Kenobi? I think if we have some pretty good solid actors coming back, obviously my biggest reaction was seeing you and McGregor and Hayden Christensen coming back to their roles. I'm one of those Star Trek or Star Wars fans that I actually prefer you and McGregor over Alec Guinness. 
And I think I said that one of our previous episodes, and it's nothing against Alec Guinness, but I guess, you know, me coming into Star Wars later and really around the time of the prequels, I kind of grew up with Ewan McGregor as Obi-Wan. So I I guess maybe that's kind of why I favor him a little bit more. But uh, he, there was a picture, I don't know if you saw it online, I guess, of him, he's growing his beard back. Mm -hmm. I did see that. Yeah. That I, I posted about that shared that on my Facebook page, and I was like, I cannot wait for this series. That this series I have been dying for to kind of get that backstory filled in. And I just don't think it would have been the same if they didn't have Hayden Christensen back. It, I mean, I'm sure they could have found a good actor and all that kind of stuff, but again, it, it, it keeps the continuity going. And I really enjoyed Hayden Christensen's portrayal as Anakin or, and as Darth Vader. It, 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 and a lot of people say that he was so wooden and, and put no emotion in. I just rewatched episode three recently, and I just I kept saying to myself, why do people think he's such a bad actor? I mean, just the fact when you watch him with Padme, you can feel how much he loves her. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's not like it was just faked or forced on. You could see it in his face. The way he portrayed it. it, it's just, I think the only thing that really makes Hayden Christensen kind of come off as whiny in the character, and it's not his fault, but when he says, it's not fair. Every time I hear him, a 20 something year old saying, it's not fair, I cringe. <laughs> so I think that for me personally is, is what kind of made him sound kind of off. But otherwise, I thought he did a, an incredible job in the role. You know, what are your thoughts? Oh, yeah. I, I think Hayden Christensen gets a lot of, well, maybe not so much anymore, but he did get a lot of crap for the way he portrayed Anakin. But, you know, mm-hmm. he was a he was an eight-year-old boy who got whisked away to begin Jedi training so, you know, at, at such an older age compared to other Jedi. He, he never really, he never had a chance to, you know, be a, a, a true teenager, you know, outside of the Jedi Order, and then he never mm-hmm. had the chance to grow up w- inside the Jedi Order, uh, you know, and and be indoctrinated as you know as as much uh, as they tended to do when they, you know, when they were able to get the younglings when they were babies. Um, sure. So he was kind of stuck in that, you know, that uh, that middle ground where he was he had one foot in both worlds he had he had a foot in the galaxy at large and then he had one foot in the jedi order and it it basically did you know tear him apart because he didn't know how to he didn't know how to handle you know growing up in the in the jedi order because he had so many years of experience as as a uh as an enslaved person on tatooine Um, Mm -hmm. he went from almost one form of slavery to another. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. I never thought of it that way before, but you're right. You know, I mean, not being able to love and then having to do it secretly. Yeah, that would be a handicap, you know, in a form of slavery. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know where that came from, but that just it just popped into my mind. Let's move on to the next thing. So, you know, not to be outdone with announcements of small screen projects that are coming our way. Star Wars also released the final trailer for Star Wars The Bad Batch, which is the next animation project coming to Disney Plus beginning May 4th. The premiere episode is going to be a, an astonishing feature length of 70 minutes, which I am super excited for. Uh, yes. You know, the trailer that we see is teasing the overall plot of the show, which is initially showing the Bad Batch being used by the new Galactic Empire, and then the eventual order from Admiral Tarkin himself 
that they are now enemies of the empire and that they are to be hunted down and killed. Um, you know, we're going to be seeing a new younger clone named Omega. Uh, we're going to be seeing Saw Guerrero, who was in uh, the Clone Wars and uh, also Rogue One and Rebels. Uh, and then we're going to see a, a young Fennec Shand from the Man- Mandalorian as well. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm real excited, you know, that we got the teases of all these new characters. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I knew that Fennec Shan was going to be in it, but Saw Gerrera took me by surprise completely. And so did Omega. Um, you know, I wasn't initially very excited about the Bad Batch before this trailer. You know, I, I thought their four episode arc in season seven of the Clone Wars was a fun watch, but I mm-hmm. never thought it was good enough to carry an entire show focused on just those five. But, you know, this trailer has really changed my mind. Uh, you know, I keep going back and I keep listening to those those scenes with Omega. And I just can't figure out if Omega is male or female. Uh, mm-hmm. It sounds to me like a female voice. Uh, okay. And, I, and I, I don't know how much you've watched the trailer, but, you know, I, I personally think that's a pretty cool concept and twist. You know, that the, mm-hmm. the final, I mean, Omega, of course, from the, you know, uh, from you know we know from the greek alphabet is the last letter of the greek alphabet and is often re- you know used to refer to the end uh the, the fact that omega is the final clone from jango fett's dna and, and the fact that her mutation kind of like the bad batch could be the fact that she's female and not male it's it's super interesting uh mm. then it's going to give that show the show a different vibe that just isn't completely dominated by a bunch of dudes Exactly. So, exactly. What do yeah. you think? I agree with what you're you're saying. I think there was a little hesitation about they've only been in, they were only in four episodes. So how are they going to really be able to carry a show? But in those four episodes, when I watched them, they developed the characters very well, and I really enjoy how they each had this very strong, unique personality and and like I guess strength almost, almost like like su- each has a superpower basically what it comes to and uh so i think in giving them the the omega twist and also the fact that they kind of have a hard time with following orders which i guess leads to why they're uh tarkin wants them eliminated i think it's going to make for a very interesting show but even just the fact that we're going to see the very early years of the empire that's the part i'm looking forward to the most and you know maybe not so much the characters but just that time period i just is star wars has definitely had its very lengthy periods. It's got the prequel era, it's got the regular era, then it's got the sequel era. And I don't think any era is as interesting as during the, the, the reign of the Empire. So I right. think to seeing a part of it that we've never seen before is going to be very exciting and fresh. Yeah, you I know? agree. You know, we, we've seen the tail end of the Empire in Rebels and, and Rogue mm-hmm. One. Uh, but yeah, we've never truly seen anything from the very early years of the empire the you know the first mm-hmm. 10 years we've seen the latter you know the final nine you know years or so but we've never seen of course yeah you know, we've never seen the uh the final or the, the i'm sorry the earliest uh half of of the empire years so yeah that should exactly. be exciting what i would love to see is the imperial senate it's been mentioned numerous times but to actually maybe see it and what it was like during that time would be kind of interesting it's just a little side note yeah i don't know how much we're going to get into the politics uh, uh, mm-hmm. of, of the uh, of the new empire but it would be interesting to see yeah for sure mm-hmm. yeah um, i'm just fanboying <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah i mean i have a, i mean obviously the the galactic senate or you know the, rather the imperial senate is more of 
a formality than anything but yeah to exactly see, to see a little bit of the inner workings would be cool i agree yeah yeah. All right. All right. So uh, our final bit of news comes straight out of Disney Parks and, and what they're doing uh, when it comes to Star Wars. Uh, I, I saw this article in Attractions Magazine. Uh, well, no, rather, I saw it on Attractions Magazine's website. Uh, the chairman of Disney Parks Experiences and Products, uh, a gentleman by the name of Josh Tomorrow, he was part of a virtual session talking about some of the things coming to Disney parks worldwide in the next few years. Uh, and the final, let's say mic drop moment uh, came when tomorrow appeared standing inside of galaxy's edge at Disneyland park. Uh, he was holding a, a lightsaber hilt and it looked like he pressed a button on it and a lightsaber blade comes out of this lightsaber hilt, you know, and, and then he just says, yeah, it's real. I mean, what? 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 I mean, that has to be some sort of a joke, right? I mean, the, yeah. the lightsaber isn't real, but it, 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 it was the blade hidden inside the hilt. Is it a retractable blade? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, certainly there are no such thing as kyber crystals, you know, in real life. So what the heck is he showing? Right. Right. But, you know, then I, you know, the more I thought about it, you know, I, uh, I realized and I did some research that in, uh, I believe it was in, yeah, it was in 2017, Disney had filed for a patent uh, for something that they described as a, quote, sword device with a retractable, internally illuminated blade. Uh, and my guess is that th- this thing that he showed is the culmination of that patent. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, the blade has to somehow be, uh, you know, it has to be retractable. It has to be hidden inside the hilt. Um, you know, I, uh, I, as someone who has been to Galaxy's Edge uh, and, and made one of those lightsabers at Savi's workshop, uh, I can tell you that the, the blade that comes with the one that I have is removable but it's definitely not retractable. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm super excited for this. And, uh, you know, I might have to be making another lightsaber Ooh. sometime in the future. I'm just mm-hmm. saying. Start <laughs> saving your credits. Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. I have a feeling it's going to be a little bit more than the 200 credits that I paid for my current one. So. Oh, wow. Interesting. <laughs> I'm sure it was worth it, though. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So what do you think? Of this, I honestly don't know what to say. I, I agree with you. I guess you know it probably is some sort of retractable blade. That, that the question is, is it something that you can actually like, like fight with? Can you like, if you would like get the blade up and then you know could you battle with somebody else who had a similar kind of lightsaber, or is it just like something that you just display and just retract up and down and that's it? I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's really exciting. It's definitely certainly something different. It's going to bring a lot of people down there to want to make them. Right, out. right. And I wonder if this is going to somehow initially be tied into the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser Hotel uh, that they're building at Walt Disney World. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, because it, by everything that I'm seeing, this is supposed to be a premium experience, uh, at, you know, in a very expensive hotel stay for a couple nights. Uh, mm. so I wonder if 
somehow one of these new lightsabers is going to be introduced to the people that pony up the money to stay there uh, kind of as an inclusion with their stay uh, before they're available mm-hmm. to the general public. Cause you know, you, you want that to feel you, you want, if you're staying there, you want it to feel exclusive, you know, you exactly. want to feel like you're getting something that nobody else can get their hands on. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I didn't even know about the, the hotel. So that, oh, wow. that was a pretty cool little piece of news. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So they're building a, uh, a star Wars, it's called the star Wars galactic star cruiser. Um, mm. and it's, it's, uh, it takes, you know, that you basically enter this hotel and you check in, but then you're led to a special elevator where you're, launched into space <laughs> and you board a uh, a, a uh, basically a essentially it's a cruise ship in space right it's going to be completely oh, wow. in universe um it's going to be an experience it's not just going to be oh you go to your you know you go into your hotel room and then you sleep and then get up and go to the parks the next day like the entire experience is going to be planned and and fully immersed in star wars like you'll be able to interact with characters on this ship you'll be able to visit the bridge of the ship um Mm -hmm. and and interact with various things um and then it looks like there's going to be a very uh you know, a, uh, an exclusive entrance into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge at Walt Disney World connected to the hotel. So uh, I imagine that you're going to get uh, some sort of uh, visit to Galaxy's Edge as well included in the stay. So, um, oh, wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But it's going it, it by everything that I'm seeing, rumors and such, it's going to be very, very pricey per person. Oh, yeah. Well, maybe if I'm lucky enough to go, my uh, 20th wedding anniversary is in 2023, and we went to Disney World for our honeymoon. So I've been pushing to go back for our 20th, and uh, maybe this is the maybe somehow I can butter up my wife and see if this is what we can do. There you go. (laughs) There you go. Either that or she'd kill me. (laughs) You know, there's never a happy yeah. There's never a happy medium, right? No, I go to the Star Trek convention. She'll come with me, but then I also have to go to New Kids on the Block concerts with her. So, yeah. hey, quid you know, pro hey. quo, right? Quid pro quo, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, hopefully, we'll see. But yeah, so that is a ton of news that we discussed. Mm-hmm. We discussed this week. So much came out over the past few weeks. It, it was hard to keep it all straight, but uh, uh, you know, I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. But you know. I, I think it's probably time for us to get into our feature discussion for the episode. Uh, oh, Chris, yes. Chris, do you want to introduce what we're talking about this week? Don't get technical with me. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, Polaris, not the end. The Jedi uses the Force for knowledge and events. Absolutely. Well, it's no secret that Star Wars and Star Trek are successful sci-fi fantasy franchises with their wealth of movies, television shows, animated series, and more. But on-screen experiences are hardly the only way for fans to interact with these universes. Of course, we're talking about the wonderful world of toys and collectibles from both Star Wars and Star Trek today. As what we're considering our own trilogy of shows here on Captain's Logs and Lightsabers, Our major focus will be on the early days of both franchises and the impact their toys have had on children, adults, and collectors of all ages. We won't be diving much into the current availability of toys and collectibles you see today, 
You'll see after our discussion today that both franchises have their share of similarities when it comes to the toys, but also quite a few differences as well. We'll kind of start with a bit of a history uh, of the toys uh, within both franchises. The Star Wars movies have made roughly $7 billion worldwide, but the toy sales have been double that. Mm. You know, collectors around the world still buy Star Wars toys today. They, you know, they look for rare pieces, uh, including the, um, the white whale of Star Wars toys, the, uh, the rocket firing Boba Fett prototype uh, that never saw production because of what had happened with a, uh, a Battlestar Galactica toy that had the same rocket firing capabilities. Uh, unfortunately, it got uh, lodged in the throat of a child and, and that child uh, choked to death. So mm. Kenner stopped making, or they stopped the production of that toy. And now, you know, the few that are still around are fetching a major price tag. Mm. But the thing is, like with, with Star Wars toys, prior to Star Wars and, and the toys that we all know and love today, movie tie-in toys were just not really a thing. There, right. you know, unlike a TV show that had episodes that aired every each and every week, there just wasn't a constant reminder uh, to kids to basically, you know, to beg their parents for the the next toy from their favorite show, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then you know all of these major toy companies, you know, Mattel and and uh, Mego had passed on the star star wars license they had passed on the you know they had rejected that pitch from 20th century fox to be the manufacturer of these toys and even hasbro passed which you know hasbro finally <laughs> came back around and realized hey we screwed up and now they have the the license for the majority of these toys mm-hmm. kenner had you know which is a, which was a very very small toy company uh based out of cincinnati ohio had received the script for star wars uh, you know, and they had received some various sketches of the ships and characters. Uh, and Jim Swearingen, who was the chief designer for Kenner, had volunteered to read the script because he had been a huge fan of George Lucas and, and a huge fan of sci-fi. He loved THX 1138. He was a fan of uh, American Graffiti, and he had been following George Lucas's career uh, very closely up to that point. So he knew what they had. He knew what George Lucas was capable of. So... You know, Jim Swearingen was able to con- convince pr- uh, Kenner to produce these characters and vehicles. And at the time, you know, the most popular figures were the 12-inch figures, right? Mm-hmm. They were the most popular in the 1970s. So like Barbie and G.I. Joe, they were all 12-inch, highly articulated figures. They kind of had to get creative because they knew by producing these uh, the ships and the vehicles from Star Wars that they wouldn't be able to produce them on such a scale that, you know, that 12-inch figures would fit in because nobody would buy them because of the price that they would have to charge for them. Uh, and just, the you know, the they wouldn't have the means to produce the toys that big uh, uh, either. Um, so, you know, they had to get creative. And then the, uh, the president of Kenner, Bernie Loomis, he had decided on the size of the figures and it's it's funny. There's a little anecdote where uh, Bernie Loomis just spread his thumb and forefinger, uh, you know, apart as far as they would go, and he said, "That's the size that they're going to be." So one of the engineers of Kenner took a uh, a small rule ruler and measured the width between his two fingers was three and three quarters inches, which huh. is exactly the size of 
these figures that uh, have you know have uh, were that that Kenner manufactured and released for the Star Wars line. The design team at Kenner had used these Fisher Price vehicle driver figures as kind of inspiration for uh, the Star Wars characters, and they basically you know they basically did a bunch of kit bashing where they took parts and pieces from each, from all these different toys and put them together and they mashed them together. And that was the initial prototype, uh, you know, that they had presented to George Lucas for review. Kenner was, yeah, (laughs) Kenner was actually quite brilliant when they had decided to make this, uh, you know, to, to uh, seek the contract to make these toys because they got one heck of a deal, uh, you know, for every dollar that all these Star Wars toys made, George Lucas and Fox split five cents of every dollar. So each of them made two and a half cents. And then <laughs> Kenner made 95 cents on each dollar that these toys made, which is insane. No kidding. Wow. <laughs> Man. But we're smart. <laughs> right? Right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. Anybody that grew up in the 70s that, that you know, grew up with these toys knows that, you know, they, the, the Star Wars figures weren't available uh, when the movie came out because Kenner didn't have enough time. They didn't mm-hmm. get the contract and the license until a few months before the movie was released. A lot of the early Star Wars toys before these famous figures that everybody you know knows and loves, they kind of took some of their existing toys and did what's called label slapping in the toy industry, where they just basically reused some of their existing toys, changed the color of the plastic, and put Star Wars stickers on them. Uh, you know, they 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 focused on releasing simple items that could be easily produced with with just a few pictures. You know, they did board games and and, uh-huh. and like I said, taking these existing existing toys and putting uh you know star wars stickers on them um you know but you know once they had realized you know that they're going to make these figure you know this line of figures they had taken a huge gamble and came up with this concept of the star wars early bird certificate program which was basically just a cardboard box and a backdrop and a promise to kids that if they pre-ordered this early bird certificate that they would receive the figures at, at some point in 1978, uh, which, you know, was, uh, sometime, I, I believe it was between spring and early summer of 1978. So over a full year after star Wars, a new hope had hit theaters. They, they had promised to ship these figures, which I can't imagine being a kid in, in 1977 and just not and only wanting a star Wars toy, but being told that, I have to wait six months yeah. to be able to get it. <laughs> yeah. Kids cannot delay gratification that long. As a child and adolescent therapist, I will tell you that right now. It is not happening. Yeah, so I can only imagine the torture. Right, right. But, you know, like I said, this gamble paid off, man. It, it you know, Kenner sold 22 million figures each year from the time that they had them widely available. That's just insane. Wow. <laughs> Mm. What I've found also is the original agreement for the profits from toys held up um, under the condition that enough were sold for Lucas and Fox to make $10,000 in royalties. 
Steve Sansweet, the owner slash president of Rancho Obi-Wan in Northern California, currently owns the largest collection of Star Wars memorabilia in the world. And this is according to the Guinness Book of Records. Over 400,000 pieces, nearly every toy ever made for archiving. Like, that is just mind-blowing. But for those of you who do not know what Rancho Obi-Wan is, um, Rancho Obi-Wan is a nonprofit organization that you can purchase a membership to support, much like any, like any other museum. They offer tours. Uh, they host a yearly gala. Steve purchases all the toys at Rancho Obi-Wan on his own and does not use donations to acquire items. So that, that makes him pretty unique and special. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually, you know, going back to our Star Wars Celebration talk, I, I met Steve Sansweet at uh, Celebration 2017 uh, because every year at Star Wars Celebration, they have uh, an exhibit out on the show floor. Uh, and the year that I went, it was a, a recreation of what you know, would be a, a typical child's bedroom in 1978 uh, because they were celebrating, you know, a, a lot of the toys and such that were available within that year after Star Wars release. So they had all of these toys in, in, in a kid's bedroom. It was such a cool little uh, exhibit that you could just walk through. And then at the end, you got to meet Steve. And you, if you wanted, you could donate to Rancho Obi-Wan. And he would get, you know, if you donated, you would get an autograph of a picture of him. Uh, and Steve Sansweet was the, uh, not only, you know, that's what he does now. He's the owner and president of Rancho Obi-Wan, but for years he was the, uh, the head of star Wars fan relations for Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. He's just, just, it's just crazy that, <laughs> that there's, uh, somebody out there who has all of these star Wars items and just keeps them, mm -hmm. uh, in a museum. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it, it's he's a cool dude. I I, I really mm -hmm. got you know appreciated getting the chance to meet him. All right, well, that's so, a great memory. Thank yeah, you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. So uh, carry on, Chris. Okay, so in in addition to what we just discussed, um, the Millennium Falcon toy cost almost twenty five dollars in nineteen eighties dollars, while the figures were between seven dollars and ten dollars. Kenner wanted to introduce toys that had price points somewhere in the middle. They developed mini transports, they, they called mini rigs, that were never seen in the films. The story behind them was that they, they were in-universe, they were there, just slightly out of frame. George Lucas loved the idea because it gave more depth to the universe he created. Because of the, quote, dark times, that it was called, between Return of the Jedi and the prequels, and a failed line of Star Wars miniature toys and vehicles, Kenner was nearly bankrupt. They were purchased by Hasbro, but the original contract between Kenner and Lucasfilm Fox had also expired. This gave negotiation rights back to Lucasfilm. Hasbro knew they needed to get the license back, so they did whatever it took to ensure they didn't lose. The negotiation took six days, and Lucasfilm went from 5% of the profit to 18% of the profit. Amazing statistics and just amazing things that Hasbro did to get the license back, but hey, I, don't, I can see why they did. I mean, you know? yeah, and they still hold the license to this day. And, you know, while it's hard to find figures in stores, uh, Hasbro sells a lot of their stuff directly on their own website. Um, they have a lot of online partners. I mean, they, you know, they, there's a lot of exclusives that they sell, you know, that they make available to stores like Walmart and Target. But yeah, the majority of their figure business is done online, which is kind of a shame because, you know, 
part of the excitement of, of getting new toys is, is being able to go to the store and browse the shelves and, and, you know, look through all of the pegs, you know, and, and find that one figure that you just didn't expect to find. And then you, you just can't do that anymore. And I'm so kind of no. disappointed. Like, I mean, I collect a few of the, the Star Wars Black Series figures uh, that they've released. Um, but, you know, the fact that I just I have to order them online, it's it's convenient, it's easy. But at the same time, it kind of takes the joy out of going to a toy store or, or you know, or the toy aisle of a store and just looking for that special find. Mm -hmm. And then when you find the figure that you want, you look for the one that's in the best shape without the scratches or the paint mess ups or things like that. Right. You know, that's right. part of the fun. Yeah. And, I, you know, I've I've been very lucky with a lot of the figures that I've ordered online. The boxes have come in good condition. You know, they they've uh, you know, they haven't been crushed or damaged. They're you know, they're shipped well. But I know uh, there are a lot of people um, I'm in what uh, I'm in the Pennsylvania Star Wars Collector Society. Uh, and there are a lot of folks in that group that have reported horror stories of you know how you know how damaged their toys have you know their figures have, and collectibles have arrived you know from places like Amazon, Walmart, and GameStop is a notorious uh, you know for shipping things very crappily. Mm -hmm. so, uh, I'm I'm lucky to be so fortunate that my toys have come in good condition. So that's wonderful. Uh, I know you know. Uh, do you uh, do you collect any Star Wars toys, Chris, or? I don't collect any Star Wars toys, but I've bought a lot of different Star Wars figures on and off over the years. I do, my very first Star Wars figure I bought was, I believe, Darth Vader from, uh, I think it was released in like 96 or 97. What was that wave? The Power of the Force or something? It had the green and black box. It was either Power of the Force or Power of the Force 2. I can't remember. Okay. I, I, I'm, I'm very uneducated on the date range mm -hmm. for that line. I know they, they released two different lines of the Power of the Force. And I know the first ones were unrealistic. That you know, the, <laughs> the, the muscles? The, the, yeah, the, yeah, the muscles. Right, right. The, the characters looked like they belonged in He-Man, not Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, I was actually at the comic book store yesterday and I came across a loose, uh, loose one of Luke Skywalker with the muscles. And I, it, it looked like he did. He looked like He-Man. He did. It was just it was the weirdest thing. You know, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't buy those. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. Power of the Force 2 is a much better line. So uh, mm -hmm. do you think do you real do you know if those are the ones you got or if you got the original ones? I, I I have no original ones from okay. back when the movies were out. Yeah. So it would, had to have been the, the later the later line um that got a, a few of the the ones for the phantom menace and you know i remember being buying c3po from attack of the clones the day that the, the figures came out i was actually a junior in college at the time and i went on my lunch break to go get it <laughs> i was really excited <laughs> about those figures you know and there was a toy store right next door um so that that one's got a special attachment with me um, but I wish I had more, more money and more time to go and buy the star Wars figures, but tr buying star Trek and star Wars, I, I don't have a lot, a whole ton of money or a whole lot of room, you know? So, yeah. So I've kind of just picked and picked and choose 
or chosen whatever ones that I wanted. I will say I have a couple on my wish list, though. I do want to get some... Palpatine is my favorite of the Star Wars villains. I just think he's the neatest character, just how intellectual and how devious he is with his mind. Right. And uh, so I definitely want to get... I do have an Emperor from 96 or 97, but I do want to get his figures, his Senator Palpatine, his Chancellor Palpatine from a couple different movies, and, you know, whatever other Emperor figures that ever came out. So I'm always on the lookout for those. You know, so hopefully I'll I'll be able to add something like that. The one figure that I really want, and and it's nothing special, but I remember when the uh, the uh, special editions came out, and Pepsi and Frito Lay were you know tying in with all that. And I remember Frito the the Lay's potato chips having a an offer for the Force Ghost of Obi Wan Kenobi. And I heard it, it's not like it's very detailed or anything like that, but it's it's just that one figure for some reason I just want for some odd reason. And it's, again, nothing special. It's just, I just it reminds me back to that time, you know, so I wanna, whenever I can find one, I'll, I'll pick one of those up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. You know. nice. Yeah, so I kind of have to confess that, you know, as a kid, I never had the Star Wars toys growing up. You know, my I, I love the movies. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just never really got into the toys, you know, because, you know, my my toy collections growing up were came from two properties, uh, either Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because I was obsessed with the animated show. A little bit later, uh, I, I became obsessed with the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. So those were my two major toy collections. Uh, and I kind of missed out on the Star Wars collectibles uh, and toys, you know, growing up. So I'm kind of making up for it now by picking and choosing certain toys that I, you know, that I want to buy. Uh, I am, you know, as, as, you know, anyone who's listened to the show, uh, listened to our first episode knows that my absolute favorite character from star wars is ahsoka tano so anytime an ahsoka toy comes out i am pre-ordering it the day it comes out of course i had to also get the star wars uh black series of jar jar binks when he was released also that's probably my latest toy acquisition and i have no shame no i don't blame you i saw that jar jar on the shelf at walmart very nicely detailed really great figure yeah absolutely they did a fantastic job and, and really gave a lot of love to that character that just, you know, has, has been so maligned by fans. And Exactly. You know, I'm sorry. I love Jar Jar. We've talked about this. You and I both love Jar Jar. So, Absolutely. Um, yes. No regrets. No, no regrets. <laughs> None at all, sir. <laughs> We've kind of talked Star Wars toys a, a good bit. Let's get into the Star Trek toys and kind of go over their history, which uh, spoiler alert is, is a lot rockier than the Star Wars toys have been. So yeah, even though Star Trek had a 10 year head start on the toy line over Star Wars, uh, the, the, you know, the franchise was plagued by toys that had absolutely nothing mm-hmm. to do with the show. Uh, yes. You know, Gene Roddenberry, you know, kind of a little bit of background of Gene Roddenberry. He was a World War II bomber pilot. He flew commercial jets for Pan Am after he left the service. And then he was a police officer in in Los Angeles. Like, he had such a varied career before he got into TV and and film. Uh, You know, and this kind of gave him a very broad worldview, a very broad perspective of humanity. Uh, and, And he wanted to produce something uh you know he wanted to produce to to produce sci-fi that 
was not treated like the like stuff for kids. You know, mm-hmm. uh, he wanted to basically, you know, he had pitched the idea of a Western in space. Essentially, that's what Star Trek is. You know, in, instead of horses, you have spaceships. Um, instead of Native Americans, you have various alien races. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's it's the 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 similarities are very you know incredible and and because westerns were really popular in in the theaters you know in the 1960s it it seemed to gene like it was a a shoe in but he had trouble getting anybody willing to produce it so uh you know initially desi lu you know lucille ball and desi arnaz there they started you know they had this fledging production company desi lu and they took a chance on star trek they had you know lucille and, and desi had realized that Underneath the surface of this Western in space, uh, they realized that Star Trek was a commentary on the sociopolitical environment of the 1960s, you know, Mm -hmm. at at its heart. Uh, But unfortunately, you know, the show had been plagued by budget restrictions. Uh, Toys were never really given a serious thought because they were a bottom of the list concern because they were just worried about being able to make the episodes uh, each and every week for release and be able to produce them so that they look decent. Um, So toys were very, very much at the bottom of the list. So uh, thankfully a a company called AMT, which is aluminum model toy company, they're a patterning company and they specialized in creating model car kits that were highly detailed. You know, they had won the first contract to make the toys based on Star Trek. And and in exchange for, you know, for getting this contract, they agreed to design and create the Galileo shuttlecraft that we see in the original series. And they, they produced the shuttlecraft at no cost to Desilu. I mean, that was brilliant on their part. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And uh, the, the, the models, I don't know if you've ever seen any of the AMT models, but they are highly detailed. Um, they're, they're easy to assemble. The only issue I ever had with AMT is with their Enterprise A models. For some reason, the engines didn't want to stay up, the warp nacelles, and they would always break off. Huh. There was no way to fix them. That was the only gripe. But they, their, their models growing were, were wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So AMT had won this contract, but you know, again, they weren't really toys that they produced. They were, you know, they were model kits. They were things that you put together. You and then you put them on display. You didn't really play with them like toys. And and unfortunately, unlike Star Wars, it would prove to be in the 1970s, Star Trek toys were just not a hit right away. You know, the show had really re, had initially received some mixed reviews from critics, and it just didn't pick up a young audience the audience for star trek was a, a skewed a little bit older um so you know the toys just didn't sell but that didn't stop certain companies from trying <laughs> oh i know so, uh chris you want to tell us a little bit about remco oh yes wonderful remco so remco had a line of toys um called hamilton invaders in which army soldiers on earth would fight against invading insects these toys, like they had like helmets, tanks, you know, those kind of things. They got the label slapping treatment, if you want to call it that. They would also put the word Astro in front of their copters, tanks, and ray guns. I mean, it was ridiculous. They even had parachuting Kirk and Spock at, at, at different times. And they you had these little like guns that you could shoot discs at characters. It, it, it was just bizarre stuff. But thankfully, AMT took their license much more seriously. The company specialized in accurate reproductions of vehicles with their kits, thank goodness. 
They released a model kit of the Enterprise, and it was insanely accurate. It sold over 1 million units in its first year. It's, it's just mind-boggling. I mean, AMT also released a Klingon battlecruiser and the Galileo shuttercraft models. Um, I actually had the Galileo growing up. Uh, they branched out from screen replica model kits to release the USS Enterprise Exploration Shed, which featured screen-accurate models of the phaser, tricorder, and communicator all in one box. And they actually made them a, to a size for kids, which, which was wonderful. The production costs of Star Trek proved too much for Desilu, and unfortunately, Lucille Ball sold the company to Paramount, but it was also fortunate because Paramount guided Star Trek for many, many years after that. But unfortunately, the quality of the toys released went downhill, it, basically what you could say at warp speed. So they licensed the company to make Kitty Blackboard that became infamous for its depiction of the Enterprise upside down. <laughs> They licensed the comic book, which featured the Enterprise on the surface of a planet, which fans know is just not possible. So other things that started to happen with Star Trek around that time is after the show was canceled in 1969, it immediately got sold into syndication, which actually made Star Trek much more popular. Um, little side note is, um, I believe it was a year after the season after Star Trek ended, they found that Star Trek was very highly popular in the coveted 18 to 49 age range. So if they would have been doing the demographics, Star Trek probably would have been saved for a fourth season. Um, but syndication, thankfully, saved the show in, in reruns. Um, and because the show aired in more friendly time slots, the demand for toys skyrocketed by 1976. Unfortunately, the toy companies continued their, quote, label-slapping ways and released all those things you remember from the show. <laughs> Inflatable bot bags, portable pinball games, phaser saucer guns, parachuting Kirk and Spock figures, and everybody's favorite, the freeze-sickle ice pops. <laughs> I don't know what they were thinking, but I, whatever. I mean, I, I could mean, go for a freeze-sickle ice pop, but it doesn't have to be Star Trek. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was crazy. But really, a, a few of these toys were anywhere near as bad as the Star Trek Space Fun helmet that had an antenna and a <laughs> red light on top called a flashing light emitter and sonic siren. The helmet also was emblazoned with the name Spock or Kirk in stylized letters, reminiscent of a font used for the show's title sequence. Have you ever seen this Space Fun helmet? Have you seen pictures of it? I've seen pictures of it, and I saw a recreation of it at, at, at one of the Star Wars or Star Trek Las Vegas. I believe it was in 2019. Somebody actually created a, a prop out of out of nothing and cosplayed in it, and I mean it was popular all over the place. You saw people taking pictures with this guy in the helmet. Absolutely, because it's it, just so bonkers. I uh, yeah. why I am not surprised in, that I, yeah I am not surprised that there was a, a fan that cosplayed with that helmet. Mm -hmm. That that is brilliant and kudos to you sir yes exactly I mean, and he created he molded it out of nothing so i mean that made it even more spectacular you know so but thankfully the mego company who saw the embarrassing quality of these toys not just in star trek started releasing figures of many different things like sports stars popular singers i think Cher had a, a toy and began licensing licensing movies and tv show properties to create toys Enter a, a gentleman named Marty Abrams, the father of the modern-day action figure, 
who was the president of Mego at the time. So he revived the superhero toy genre with DC and Marvel figures. They also had the license from Fox for Planet of the Apes toys. In 1974, Star Trek was finally seen as a viable toy property due to its syndication success and the release of the animated series on NBC in Saturday mornings in 1973. So toys weren't released for that show, but Mego obtained the license with an advance of $5,000. The line would go on to make over $50 million. $50 million. They initially released five figures. So they had Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, without it, absolutely, Scotty, and then they had a Klingon. They later released a new horror figure because of how popular Barbie dolls were. So for the first time in almost 10 years, Star Trek toys actually looked like they were supposed to from something on screen. The level of detail in the face sculpts for the character figures, they were, it was just incredible. But... They did get a little silly at times. Um, the Mugato creature was wearing clothing. It, it looked like some sort of space hippie kind of clothing. Yep. Just, just as a little side note, um, at Star Trek Las Vegas in 2019, somebody actually cosplayed as that Mego action figure. Nice. Yeah, it, I got pictures of it. <laughs> and if there is something off the wall for fans to cosplay as, they will do it. And and that's that's so awesome that not only... Star Wars fans will do that, but Star Trek fans as well. Again, exactly. we are not so different from one another. That's what we're trying to show you with this with this podcast. Exactly. That's the whole point of it. You know, so but also going back to the, the Amigo uh Gorn, uh it's it says it was created by Kit Bashing Lizard from the Spider-Man figure line and General Ursus from the Planet of the Apes line. The Gorn figure has hairy hands because it was an ape sculpt. The outfit, outfit actually put on the Gorn was the same one for the Klingon from the Star Trek line. Uh, it, so thankfully, there were plenty of other innovative toys for Mego. So they created a, a bridge set, which basically, it had a similar layout, but it looked basically nothing like the actual bridge from the Enterprise. But what it's known for is that transporter where you would spin the figure on the platform. So you'd spin it one way and it would look like they disappeared and then turn it around again and there it was. I think it was featured on uh, the Big Bang Theory in a season five episode where Penny got one for Leonard and for Sheldon. Sheldon just had to open his. So Yeah, so yeah, that, that's basically what that was. Um, they also released a special set called Mission to Gamma 6. So basically it was, it was the... Uh, a creation of there was an episode of the second season called the apple which had red skinned humanoid aliens who worshiped a snake-like idol of this head and it was named vol and that's basically what it was it doesn't look exactly the same but you get the, the gist of it so Miko also released a tricorder toy that was really a portable cassette player in disguise so that must have been one of the first cassette kind of toys made for kids they had a phaser playset that was essentially an early version of laser tag as well, which is really cool when you think about it. Um, they also had a communicator toy that was a walkie-talkie with what was like a really long antenna and an ear-piercing siren when you press the button to flip open the toy. It kind of looked like a communicator. It had to flip the flip open lid, but it was also blue, and it, just, it looked a little bizarre. But at least, I mean, they made an attempt to make something similar to what the communicators looked like. So Miko had the opportunity to create the Star Wars toy line because of the relationship they had with Fox and, and with the success of the Planet of the Apes toys. But Marty and his company passed on the license uh, opportunity because at the time, 
movie-based toy lines were, they were terribly unsuccessful. So they instead created and produced toys in a smaller scale, similar to the three and three quarters of Star Wars for Star Trek, the motion picture, since they were the primary license holder at that time. But the toys unfortunately failed. The company also had some unfortunate legal troubles with their business practices. And sadly, Mego died um, in the early 1980s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So just kind of a side note here, Chris, I just wanted to interject for those, you know, those of you listening that may not remember, uh, of course, Planet of the Apes has, you know, kind of originally gained notoriety as a film franchise, you know, with with Charlton Heston. But uh, in the 70s, there was a uh, Planet of the Apes television series. So that's why those toys did so well. And that's why Fox had approached Mego. We, We, you know, we went, you know, we said earlier in the show that that films just did not do well with movie tie-ins, with toy tie-ins. But because Planet of the Apes had weekly recurring episodes, their toys sold well because the kids were re- constantly reminding their parents that they wanted the latest toys. So, Absolutely. But, I mean, at least there were still some tie-ins that happened after the Migos failed. For example, Star Trek The Motion Picture was the first film property to receive a set of toys inside McDonald's Happy Meal. And so those boxes and toys and... You know, displays are are, are ver- sought after very frequently by fans online. Um, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan came out in 1982, but Paramount chose to not have any toys created for the film, even though it was it was successful. Um, that would have been interesting to see what those figures would have looked like. So. Mm-hmm. 1984, there were a couple action figures that came out. I think Ertl came out with them. And uh, they had, uh, was it Kirk, Spock, McCoy, maybe Scotty, and I think Commander Krug they had. Um, But those were really the last figures that came out until... Uh, it starts with the next generation's release. Um, with by within 1987, 1988, they contracted a, a toy company called Galoob and they created three and three quarters figures just like the Star Wars figures. But the difference was the phasers were permanently molded into the hands. And additionally, unlike the Mego toys, the detail in the faces were pretty awful. Just as another side note, uh, a lot of them weren't always like. I guess, commercially able to be received, you were able to get Picard, Riker, Geordi, and Worf, the ones in the red uniforms, but never did I see the Tasha Yar or the Data figures in the stores or the alien figures that they came out with in Series 2. Only those four figures I would ever see in the toy store. My, I got my Tasha Yar figure for seven ninety nine at a Star Trek convention in Monroeville in the early 90s. And that was the only time I had ever seen the data figure as well. And data figures actually had these blue spots a lot of times on the faces, which was a turn off for a lot of the fans as well. Um, so unfortunately, the, the, the Gloob line didn't, wasn't very successful. It did have a die cast Enterprise D, which actually could separate the saucer from the star drive section. We had two of those at my house growing up, and they nice. both broke. Aww, <laughs> they that's both a shame. Broke. Yeah. Exactly. But that was a neat toy. And also at our very first Star Trek convention in January of 1989, my dad bought all three of us the Galoob Star Trek Next Generation Phaser. And I still have them. And for the most part, they still work. They need light bulbs. But they were a lot of fun to have. We were playing with them at, at, at that convention, you know, shooting the other kid star trek fans running around the 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 convention hall so those were we had some fun with those 
So Star Trek was kind of in limbo with their action figures around after that time. They did have some Star Trek V action figures that they made. I think they made Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Captain Claw, but I, they never, I never saw them in stores. So the next company to tackle the Star Trek toy line was Playmates Toys. Thank goodness, because they were the company behind the, the, the successful Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle line, which, like you, Jonathan, I was obsessed with. So yeah, they were wonderful. So Steve Varner, one of the sculptors at Playmates, was a huge fan of Star Trek, and he and Playmates were the ones who took the license very seriously. Their toys had released at the height of TNG's audience growth, which was around the fifth season, probably around 1991, 1992. The toys were great quality in sculpts, and that they sold like crazy. They actually they nailed their target audience of not only kids, but the hard hardcore fans who were now adults. These adults poured over every little detail and they noticed that anything was slightly off. And they, they were they were wonderful. I remember my mom was working at Hill's department store at the time and she managed to get the entire set of the first line from 1992, which I most of them, I, my brother and I still my twin brother and I actually still have those to this day um, in our collections. Uh, we heavily played with them, but we would display them as well. So Playmates released a screen-accurate TOS-era phaser, and fans went crazy with that. They also had a shuttlecraft that was both pretty much screen-accurate in appearance, but also functioned as a toy where the action figures could sit in the seats inside the shuttlecraft. Speaking about my twin brother, he was very protective of his Star Trek figures and ships, and I was not allowed to play with his. He would not share them with me. <laughs> you know, yeah, especially when the uh, Next Generation Enterprise D bridge came, place that came out, I wasn't allowed near that thing at all. And if I went, went somewhere near it, he would freak and scream and yell and, and get my parents involved, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the thing about the Playmates toys is they made so many different variants on the characters. So you didn't just get the, the standard crew members or maybe like the guest starring characters. I mean, they had like characters from one off things. Like there was an episode of Voyager called, oh man, I'm blanking on it. Uh, but it was the one where Tom Paris and Captain Janeway, they, 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 went, they went past warp 10 and they apparently evolved into the next phase of humanity, which were basically salamanders cr crawling around and they made a tom paris action figure for this it's very wild widely sought out even though it wasn't a, a character uh, figure that was like rare or anything like that it's just it, people seem to really like it i mean people are getting tattoos of the salamander characters nowadays <laughs> i mean that episode I, I can't believe i'm blanking on the name right now i i guess it's driving me nuts it was season two that's all i remember Mm -hmm. um, but basically, Playmates began to appeal to the collector mindset. Every action figure that was made had a sticker at the bottom of one of the feet, which was the pro production number. And most of the kids, or even adults, wanted the lower production and would make, actually, would spend a whole lot more to actually get these earlier versions of the figures. I think part of it was that some of the figures in the later, it, the later the number went out, they were like using like parts from some of the other figures and stuff to kind of make them. And so it kind of made them as like crossbreeds almost, I guess. Uh, but so, yeah, so a lot of the ones that are limited or that were earlier in the line actually are, are very highly sought. But they also started having Star Trek figures available only at certain stores like Spencer's. And toward the end of the line in 1999, 
um, I believe Target had a, a, a line of figures. It had seven of nine in it, and some of the next generation characters in their first contact era uniforms at the four and a half inch line. But there was also, they had a line called the 1701 line where they produced exactly 1,701 of each figure and not a single one over. I think the, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the alternate version of Tasha Yar, Captain Picard in his tapestry uniform, um, and Lieutenant Barkley in, in one of the uniforms, I think, if I remember correctly. So they were actually wildly sought. Um, unfortunately, many of the Playmates figures had sold over 100,000 units, so it really alienated a bunch of the collectors and turned them against Playmates. Unfortunately, the toy sales started plummeting because of the fan outcry, and they dropped the license. I was devastated when this line ended because I had, was buying sure. stuff from 1992 when that original Next Generation lot came out, all the way to 99 when I bought the last couple figures. I think I found a Commander Riker and Counselor Troy in their first contact uniforms at the four and a half inch scale at a Target in Greensburg, PA. Those were the last figures that I actually bought from the line. And it was awful. But that's not where Star Trek toys ended. So that's where Art Asylum and Diamond Select came into the story. So they actually reproduced action figures with accurate sculpts that put even the Playmates line to shame. I mean, they were they were, I, I don't know, I think six, seven, eight inches tall. But I mean, they really went to work with real realistic coloring and detailing. I mean, I believe even with some of the Enterprise toys, which were some of the first that I think came out with Art Asylum and, and Diamond Select, they actually laser scanned the character the, or the cast to actually make their sculpts and molds to make them even more realistic. Um, but they featured accessories with swappable body parts. And basically, they were more art than toy. Diamond Selects even made a phaser that ended up being used by Archer in an episode of Star Trek Enterprise because it had that much detail in it. I think one of some of the more popular toys from that line were the ships. I'm actually looking at the Enterprise E from Art Asylum right now as I'm talking to you, Jonathan. It, it's just beautiful. I managed to get a copy of it for 30 bucks at Steel City Con a few years back. I mean, that was, nice. a, bar that was a bargain. Heck yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's I don't know if that reseller had any idea what he had on his hands. I, I, I have no clue. And I ended up getting an Enterprise B also from that guy for 30 bucks that I gave to my brother. You know, wow. I don't know what he was thinking, but I was lucky and I wasn't complaining at that point. Yeah, you know. I, I that that Diamond Select, well, Art Asylum, which became Diamond Select. Yeah, it's yeah, they you know, these toys had swappable body parts like i know you know you could you could get different head sculpts like uh i was and i i know i've brought this up on several episodes but you know i was watching the toys that made us episode on star trek toys and they had a gentleman who had like 50 or 60 different heads for the diamond select line like he even had one where it was william shatner screaming con uh, no in, in star trek 2 Wow, amazing. <laughs> and it was just that same exact face that Shatner had mm -hmm. in the movie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, it's incredible. Like, he just had a, basically a uh, uh, a storage case that was just full of all these swappable heads. It mm -hmm. was, it, it's crazy. That and, is wild. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, wow. Okay. That reminds me of the episode of Roseanne where they found uh, DJ cutting the heads off of Becky and Darlene's old dolls. Remember that one? Uh, 
I do not. I I've I've seen a lot of episodes of Roseanne, but I mm-hmm. don't remember a lot of the details. I know mean, you're you're you just have this crazy memory for that stuff. I, yeah, it's, it's I don't know. I've always loved Roseanne was my second love after any Star Trek, and so that, that yeah. yeah, and so that I guess that's why it reminded me of that <laughs> the swinging heads. Right. I can't imagine sixteen decapitated heads for Star Trek figures. <laughs> Wow! <laughs> yeah, oh, it's incredible, and and uh, you, you know, you just brought the memories flooding back to me when you said your mom worked at Hills. Man, yes. I just I love that store. Oh I my love gosh, that store so much! I, I know. got so many toys from them. Me too. Uh, from there for for you know for Christmas and birthday presents. I got my. That's where I got my Nintendo sixty four game console, mm-hmm. and, and you know to kind of not to get too off topic, but I, I remember being. Uh, <laughs> uh, the year that the Nintendo 64 came out, I previously in the year I had wanted the Nintendo Virtual Boy. I remember uh, that. I, every single time I went to Hills, I had to play with the demo, mm-hmm. and it was that just that awful, like brain hurting red graphics that just really were terrible by any standard. Exactly. But I just remember wanting it so badly, but then I saw that the Nintendo 64 was set to release uh, for the holiday season of that year, and I thankfully was able to convince my my mom to ditch the idea of the Virtual Boy and get me that. And, um, sure. Yeah, I, I am... Much happier. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Now, for that. Exactly. Now, for those of you listening, real, or just real quick, I don't know. Most people won't know what Hills Department Store was, but it was here in the in the Pittsburgh area. It was throughout Pennsylvania, and I believe in Ohio, and maybe a little bit of Maryland, if I'm remembering correctly. But mm-hmm. basically, what it was was Walmart or Target. Um, but it had the best toy aisle that you would possibly find. And Nintendo was sold there, and it was called World of Nintendo. It was. Mm-hmm. I almost said the F word. It was just that amazing. (laughs) It was that good. And you could not find better soft pretzels than you could find at this point. I mean, there was, there was something for everybody. But it went, oh, that snack yes. bar was so amazing. Oh Oh my gosh. The the soft pretzels, the popcorn, the ices. You just walked into Hills and you were hit immediately with the smell of that snack bar. And it was incredible. And And then, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Oh. I was just going to say, there is a candle company uh, local to the Pittsburgh area called Sugar Creek Candle Company. They make a candle that smells exactly like the Hill Snack Bar. Mm. <laughs> and, and it does. So I bought that candle for my mom and uh, when it was still tied into Pittsburgh Dad um, at the time. Yeah. And uh, it, yeah, it, it smelled just like it. I don't know how they did it. But I mean, it was just, it was just such an incredible store and it went bankrupt. So I, my wife worked there for a period right around the time it closed. I guess somebody was the CEO or somebody was doing something, you know, skimming money or whatever. And the place went bankrupt, unfortunately. So it died in 1999, right? Two months before yeah. I graduated from high school. But the, and the, to this day, there is not one person that I've ever met who hated Hills. No, and, no, not at all. Up. No, I mean, everybody loves it. You know, and just it was it was horrible when it died. Right. You know, and they had that they had that just that perfect jingle that I can still just recite, you know, and sing to this day. And you know, you said it, it's they they had the most amazing toy and electronic section. Uh, yeah. You know, and it's it's such a damn shame that yeah. they just are, that, that, are no longer around. I miss them so much. 
Yeah, just the toy jingle you were talking about is Hills is Where the Toys Are. Christmas time, yes. that was our anthem. That was every yes. child's anthem that you had. That and, oh, my God. And then you had to watch the... Yeah, and then you had to watch the Eaton Park holiday commercial. Exactly. Exactly. So if, if anybody wants to know what we're talking about, go on to YouTube. They still have the Hills is Where the Toys Are uh, jingle there, the, the video, the commercials, and the Eaton Park Christmas tree and star. Then you'll just, yeah. you'll, you know, yins have to come along with us here to Pittsburgh. <laughs> you know? Yep, absolutely. And I actually might link both of those videos uh, in the show notes for the episode too. for fun. Yes. Yep. So. All right. Uh, yeah, we have we got on a bit of a tangent. Yes, but a fun again, one though. Absolutely, walk down memory lane for us Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah, let's let's kind of wrap up and and we'll like I said, we're not going to talk about the current state of Star Wars toys and Star Trek toys all that much, but you know, currently the the Star Trek license is held by McFarland Toys as well as Eagle Moss. Um, you know, the the current expectation from collectors is just so unparalleled. And that and current and future licensees just know that they have to make sure that every single thing that they release just meets the expectation of these collectors mm-hmm. because they don't want to alienate fans and they don't want to create exclusive lines. You know, they 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 don't want to do what Playmates did, unfortunately, you know, and and uh, fail the, the collector fan base. You know, and, and that's just going to lead to an, an entirely next level of Star Trek collectibles. And, and Hasbro has, you know, has their thing with the Black Series, and mm-hmm. they have all these special projects. Like, they even do crowdfunding projects for big things that cost 500 600 700 you know, dollars or more. But they, every single time, they meet these, they meet and exceed these goals to to create these odd items. The, the the collector fan base is just as wild now as it was, has been for years, mm-hmm. and it's finally nice to see that Star Trek has finally realized that, or rather, that the Star Trek licensees have finally realized that they need to be able to play ball in the same league as Star Wars mm-hmm. toy makers. Exactly. And you know what? I'll, I'm going to be honest. You know, I'm 40 years old right now, and I still collect a lot of Star Trek toys. Uh, just yesterday, I went to a comic book store and bought the Commander Chakotay figure from Star Trek Voyager from 1995. You know, so just as... as just as recently as 24 hours ago, I added to my Playmates collection that I started in 1992. You know, it's just these figures are just when they mean they, they mean something to me. I don't I've always loved action figures. I think for me, it's like having it's like having the actual character in your house. And I think that's why I've always been so drawn to them, you know, over the years, whether it's Star Trek, Star Wars, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Dick Tracy. Uh, yes, I had some of those big Tracy figures, a whole bunch of different stuff, you know, and Jonathan, I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way, you know, it, it, oh, yeah. you feel young. It's just, it, it just feels great when you find something you haven't had in your collection, you know? Yeah. I do want to add one quick thing. And I, I talked about this a little bit ago. I unfortunately got some sun damage on some of my older playmates toys. Um, and, uh, I don't know why, but the ones that were affected were of the African-American characters. My original Worf, my Guinan, uh, my Lieutenant Uhura, all faded in the face. It looks like they're African-American with white painted on their on their faces. And I don't know how to restore them. I don't know if they're permanently damaged or if there's something that I can wipe on them or do something to bring the color back. If anybody out there knows how I can fix these figures and restore them, please, please, please reach out to me. Okay. I really want to restore them. Please send me anything that you can find. 
I will be highly grateful. All right. So uh, we hope that you enjoyed this walk down memory lane of talking about the Star Trek and Star Wars toys that have been released over the years. This is going to end our three-part discussion on the influences of Star Wars on Star Trek in the 1970s and beyond. We hope you enjoyed these three episodes, and we look forward to releasing our next episode, which I think is going to be talking about the, the unique philosophies that both Gene Roddenberry and George Lucas had for their respective franchises. Oh, yes. So we're going to get uh, nice and deep and, and psychological and esoteric with our discussion with you for the next episode so that's your tease and uh, again we thank you so much for listening to this episode it was extra long we hope you don't mind we hope you enjoyed everything that we talked about today and we'll see you next time may the force be with you if you'd like to reach out to the show on twitter you can find us at logs and lightsabers pod all spelled out If you go on Facebook, search for Logs and Lightsabers Pod. Or if you want to email the show, you can reach us at logslightsaberspod at gmail.com. If you'd like to reach out to me personally, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook by searching at JustADisneyGeek. How about you, Chris? You can find me on Twitter. Just go to Twitter, type in at Chris Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-1. You can also find me on Twitter and YouTube. I have a YouTube channel called Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. On Twitter, you can go to at PGH Trek Chat. You'll find me there. On YouTube, just type in Pittsburgh's Trek Chat. That'll take you directly to my channel. My email that you can use also to get in touch with me is Christopher Stow, S-T-O-U-G-H-L-S-W at gmail.com. Great. And then also, if you'd like to connect with Geek News Now, the uh, the network on which you found this podcast, you can reach out to them on Twitter at GNN underscore home. Facebook, just search for Geek News Now. Or if you'd like to connect with GNN on their website, it's www.geeknewsnow.net. We'd appreciate any and all feedback that you're willing to provide. Just reach out to us on any of those social network contact points and tell us what you think, whether that's suggestions for new episodes, what you liked about an episode, or what we can improve upon. We want to hear it. If you're an Apple Podcast user, our show would appreciate a five-star rating and review. It really is the best way to help our show reach more listeners and make us more visible to others. If you're not an Apple Podcast user, you can also help the show by subscribing to the feed which will make sure you never miss an episode in exchange for your feedback and reviews, we would like to offer you some discounts from a couple partnerships that Geek News Now has. For the pen and paper RPG fans, we have a great offer from Metallic Dice Games. You can use the code GNN to take 10% off your entire order, including items that are already on sale. Go to MetallicDiceGames.com and shop for your RPG gaming needs. Secondly, if you have extra room in your closet or drawers for more geeky t-shirts, Ripped Apparel is offering 10% off on their site, except for the daily shirts. That promo code is GNN10. Their website is RIPTApparel.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Captain's Logs and Lightsabers. We'll see you in a couple weeks. Live long and prosper, everyone. <laughs>